Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Hopefully, because of the, the day is so nice, they don't get lost on the way over there. But uh, anyway, Matthew 25, Matthew 25, and we'll be looking at uh, the coming judgment uh, in the last part of this uh, chapter here, verses 31 through 46. I don't know about you, but uh, when was the last time you had a casual conversation about judgment? You just, you know, well, maybe a cup of coffee with somebody or just somebody at work. I started talking about judgment. I know sometimes uh, we think about judgment a little bit and we think about the judgment of God coming, uh, but probably you don't have too many casual conversations about it because it's really one of those subjects that uh, uh, people avoid. Uh, probably they don't want to talk about death and they don't want to talk about judgment. Uh, but uh, the thought that each one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of himself to the Lord does make us somewhat uncomfortable at times. And maybe we need to be uncomfortable long enough to take judgment seriously, and we need to talk about it this morning, because that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 25. Now, most people think hell is reserved for the only the worst of the worst among men. You know, like Hitler and Stalin and terrorists and mass murderers. It's as though they, they deserve judgment, but you know, really the rest of us don't. Everyone else seemingly qualifies for heaven by virtue of just being a human. You know, a lot of people think, you know, that's where I'm going to go. Someday, I'm, and they'll point up, you know, someday... Or they'll say somebody died and they're in a better place. And we don't know for sure if they are in a better place. If they're not saved, they certainly aren't. But many times we don't like to talk about judgment. It's left out of the discussion. Men choose the bliss of ignoring what they hope will not transpire. And when God is small and man is large in the Minds of people, it is easy to talk or think that judgment has no place in eternity. And if judgment doesn't exist, then men can feel no restraint in the pursuit of their sin. And if judgment does not exist, then we have to conclude that the moral justice of the universe is really just an unfounded concept and is something made up by a few people that just like to make things miserable. You know, there are people like, you know, those Christians, those Baptists, they just like to make people miserable. Talking about judgment, talking about hell. And yet if we cut out the Bible passages that either declare or infer judgment, you'd have a pretty tattered document left. Now many consider judgment to be incompatible with the teaching of Jesus Christ. They view every word from Christ to be 
just that of unrestricted love that has no punitive thought, but only heaping portions of gifts and delights for every man. And God then becomes the cosmic enabler, available to help people get everything they want in life, but carrying no authority to command or judge. Yet that kind of picture fails to demonstrate even the slightest understanding of Jesus Christ of the Bible. Jesus Christ declared the reality of judgment. And if there is no judgment, then you can be assured that there would have been no cross. Christ's entry into this world confirmed the necessity for eternal justice being satisfied if any would have a place with God in eternity. The cross stands forever as the testimony to God's disposition towards sinful man and the certainty that justice must be satisfied in the divine economy. And so our Lord concludes his teachings on the last things here just a few days before his suffering of death on the cross to assure that as the king of eternal kingdom, he was going to bear the office of judge. He that knows the weight of divine judgment on behalf of the redeemed will exercise judgment against the unbelieving. And all of us are going to face judgment. The sweet irony is that the judge has satisfied his own justice for all that believe in him. And yet most people today refuse to believe. The day will come when all of the world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Lord, He's also the judge. And in that day, you will be on the judge's right hand or left. We notice, first of all, that the judge is seated here in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. Recently, I heard the question asked if people, of people, if they knew the three branches of the United States government. Do you know the three branches of the United States government? It's called the separation of powers, and our Constitution divides our government into the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Now, if you didn't know that, shame on you, all right? But there's a lot of people today that don't know very much about the government. And each branch has its own realm of authority and responsibility. I'm afraid some of our leaders don't know this either. And debate persists in our day over situations that appear that one branch crosses over into the realm of another. And so if executive power exercises judicial authority and the judicial attempts to legislate laws, everyone is in uproar, and rightly so. But we don't have that problem with Jesus Christ. What we view as the three branches of government reside in one person of Christ. He is the lawgiver who governs us as king over his realm. He will execute judgment on all who have transgressed his commandments and refused obedience. And the teaching of Christ as he concludes this discourse called the Olivet Discourse, 
pictures him more as an ancient oriental monarch rather than our three branches of government. He's the royal judge who will one day hold court over the nations. Now, how does Jesus describe himself in this passage? Well, even though the Lord is using some what we call parabolic language, like sheep and goats, it's really not a parable. He plainly teaches of his judgment at the consummation of the ages. And the disciples asked about when the destruction of Jerusalem would take place and about the signs of Christ's coming and the end of the age. And that's what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. And having clarified concerning Jerusalem's destruction and of the glorious return of Jesus Christ, he now focuses on the end of the age. And while the parable of the ten virgins calls for vigilance and the parable of the talents calls for faithfulness, the plain teachings of this last section calls for seriousness in light of the coming judgment. Jesus Christ is the judge. Now to notice his qualifications. In typical fashion, Jesus refers to himself in the third person using the title, the Son of Man, when the Son of Man shall come. He declares himself to be the eternal judge. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. That's a reference to his second coming and the consummation of the ages and all the holy angels, it says, and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his glory. Now, throughout the gospel, Jesus has identified himself as the Son of Man. It's really a title that he gladly uh, wore, identifying him uh, with the Messiah predicted by Daniel. And there were given him dominion and glory and and, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel 7 and verse 14. And that title signifies his divine person having all the glory of God and his fulfillment of all righteousness and sacrifice on the cross as the incarnate God, giving him the right to dominion of the eternal kingdom. Jesus marks the Son of Man as one who forgives sin, suffers death on behalf of others, and comes again with power and glory. And yet Christ's humility and ordinariness as a human being, is often obscured his glory during his years here on this earth. And only those with eyes who were were opened beheld the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Now you remember way back many months ago we talked about the transfiguration. That's a long time ago in our study, isn't it? But there was the glimpses of glory that were measured out to Peter and James and John. And the one who spoke and the winds and the waves ceased and commanded Lazarus to come forth from the dead, parted the veil of his flesh from the time to time that others might see his glory. But the day is coming when everyone will see the glory of the Son of Man. Jesus has already declared in Matthew twenty four thirty, All then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all shall and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It says all. He takes up that same thought here in our text in verse thirty one when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Glory 
is descriptive of the divine essence, combined majesty of his excellence and his perfections, and brilliantly visible and perceptible. Glory is both seen and comprehended. When the glory of God filled the tabernacle, the brilliance of the divine radiance shined uh, through and the eclipse, the structure in the massive wave of light. Yet at the same time, there was no doubt in anyone's mind concerning the radiant glory. The people knew that God had come among them and they fell upon their faces and they feared for their lives. They saw and comprehended something. Now, they probably didn't comprehend everything, but they comprehended something. They had some idea of his perfection and his beauty and his holiness and his awesomeness. And so when Jesus Christ comes in his glory, no one were going to ask, well, who's that guy? They're not going to say, who's that? No, he'll be known. And he'll be understood by the radiance of the divine glory that accompanies him. The heavenly host gladly knows or follows the Son of Man and will serve him. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. The ministering spirits that were created with one consuming passion to do the pleasure of the living God, they will follow him in judgment. Heaven will empty itself of all the angels in the grand consummation of the angels or the ages when the Son of Man returns as judge of all humanity. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the heaven to the other in verse chapter twenty four and verse thirty one. Presumably the uh, angels are the ones who will do the gathering of the nations. But Jesus commands the heavenly host as the royal judge. Now, I think the last phrase here in verse 31 is very important, very striking. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. The royal priest has been seated as our mediator in interceding for us until the day then he'll be seated on the glorious throne as a judge. Uh, John gives a description of Jesus Christ on the throne of judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Beginning in verse 11, he says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And, and I saw the dead and small, a dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the, those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Now there is a difference between the great white throne and judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. The great great white throne... Uh, is going to be a judgment uh, for those who have not trusted Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, and we're not going to get into all the details of the, and differences here this morning, but Christ's enemies are going to be conquered, and they're going to be a footstool at, uh, for His feet. And all power and authority belong to Him. Nothing is going to be hidden from His gaze. 
Nothing's going to escape his throne of judgment. There are going to be no big shots. No men that are going to be puffed up are going to stand before him. None will deceive him or try to talk their way out of a sentence. No, all are going to recognize his glorious throne to be perfect in judgment. And it's going to be non-negotiable when he gives his sentence. And so we find his qualifications here. Secondly, we notice his actions. Verse 32 and 33. And before him shall gather, be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Some attempt to limit those appearing before Christ's throne to the Gentiles only. But that's really not what is said here. There's no scriptural indication of that. It just says all nations. It, uh, it includes everyone. He's going to be the universal judge and king that command all nations to appear before his throne. Now, from the time that he's saying this, in just a few days, he's going to hang from a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. But at this point, everything just seems like, you know, a universal kingship sounds like a fairy tale. But the resurrection is going to change their perspective, and he's... He that conquered the greatest of foes, that is death, will command the nations to appear before him in judgment. We often fret about the injustices that take place in our world today. You know, you can look at our world and you can see there's a lot of injustice that takes place. You know, the spread of AIDS, although that's kind of taken a back seat to the Ebola virus right now. But the spread of AIDS to innocent people by a promiscuousness of the ungodly, the starvation of millions due to the greed of a few in power, the tyranny of a nation by cruel dictatorships and the violence perpetuated by terrorists and gangs and criminals. But you know what? Not one of them will slide by the glorious throne of Jesus Christ. He's going to judge. Men will receive what is due to them according to the omniscient judgment of our Lord. The language of our text narrows the judgment to even more critical subject. As nations are gathered, he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Christ tells us that the eternal distinction will be made among the nations or the peoples of the world. Be done with the precision of a shepherd who consciously separates the sheep and the, the sheep and the goats and his flock at night while grazing upon the sparse pastures. And Christ's infinite hatred for sin will be displayed toward all that do not know him in the forgiveness of sins. And those for whom he died, the redeemed of all ages who have believed him, will be put as the sheep on his right. Those who've rejected him have turned away from him turned away from the gospel in rebellion against the Creator, he will put on the left, and those on the right will find his favor and honor, and those on the left will be eternally cursed and find his wrath. We see very plain language here in the judgment. The same Jesus Christ that invites all the weak and heavy laden to come to him for salvation will no longer extend the hand of forgiveness. There's coming a day when the there will be no offer for salvation. 
And sitting on his glorious throne, he distinguishes between every person. Some have masqueraded as Christians, but no longer will be hidden from Christ, the judge. Some have preached, some have taught, some have done great deeds of service, but never knew Jesus Christ. And were never known by him. They will discover his wrath and judgment. Some have persecuted those bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. Others have joined their folly in speaking against the truth of the scripture. And they will meet the eternal judge and will separate, be separated forever from the redeemed. How will Jesus Christ appear to you when you face the judge? So the judge is seated. Secondly, the righteous are judged. Jesus makes his authority clear as the title shifts from the Son of Man to the King. Verse 34. Then shall the King say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The theme of the kingdom kind of weaves its way through Matthew's gospel, finds a crowning moment here in this verse. The kingdom has a real king. His name is Jesus Christ. And it has real citizens, the ones who are blessed of the Father. And it's a real place. The kingdom prepared from the very beginning of the world. The statement brings together the genealogy and birth narratives to the work of Christ in fulfilling all righteousness, to the declaration of the kingdom life in the Sermon on the Mount, to the parables that were given uh, expression of the nature of the kingdom, to the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and finally the kingdom's consummation before the glorious throne. The righteous are judged by the king's command. Since Jesus Christ is the king, we must pay close attention to what he commands. He says, come, ye blessed of my father. The indication is the uniqueness of those receiving Christ's command to come into the eternal blessing prepared for kingdom citizens. How did these particular ones receive Christ's invitation? Were they of particular race or culture or country? Jesus tells us that it is ye blessed of my Father. Such a statement would encompass the doctrine of God's grace. Choosing a people before the foundation of the world upon whom he might pour out his kindness. And much more the blessing of the Father is found in the sending of his Son to secure the redemption of those people from every tongue and tribe and people and every nation by his death on the cross. Jesus Christ finished the work of the Father uh, that uh, he had been sent to do, and he did it by purchasing with his blood the sons of Adam who would believe in him. Now, if you can pinpoint one word to describe what it means by this particular blessing of the Father that secures eternal benefits, it would be the word grace. By grace, He chose you before the foundation of the world. By grace, He sent the Son to satisfy His righteousness and justice on our our behalf. By grace, 
He brought you out of death into life by regenerating work of the Spirit. By grace, He called you through the proclamation of the gospel. By grace, He gave you the gift of faith to believe the promises in Christ and the gospel. And by grace, He sanctifies and secures you until the day that you are perfected in His presence. What a blessing of the Father. And to top it off, you inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All that the Father accomplished through the Son constitutes His perfect, eternal plan. We're not plan B. The kingdom is here. The kingdom here is the messianic kingdom in its perfected heavenly state. Heavenly state. It is prepared, not merely destined, but made ready. It is preserved for the heirs, and they are guarded for an inheritance, so that neither shall fail of the other. And so we have by the king's command, secondly, by the king's standards. Verse 35 and 36, who are the ones that will inherit the kingdom prepared for the world's foundation? Now we've already noted that Jesus declares it to be those who are blessed of my Father, but he goes on further by identifying the evidence of transformed Christian character in verse 35. He says, For I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. The activities that Jesus describes, the acts of mercy and kindness and service and love, flow out of the relationship that Christians have with Jesus Christ. None merit salvation by doing these things, but rather they are evidence of one being blessed to the Father and shows up in the heart of love and service demonstrated toward others. And those who have no concern for ministry to others in Christ's name lack evidence of new life in Christ. Grace received motivates the Christian to pass along the glorious acts of kindness and love to others. And the ones hearing this description by Christ were surprised. Verse 37, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? They did not remember seeing Jesus Christ and offering him aid. These believers just saw something hungry, someone hungry, and in need of clothing, or sick, and they ministered accordingly, but they didn't see Jesus. Here our Lord makes a statement to show the depth of relationship that he has with those who put their faith in him. Look at verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Jesus Christ is identifying himself uh, uh, with his followers. And when you serve a fellow brother or sister in Christ, when you give yourself to that person, when you aid them or him or her in the time of need, Jesus declares it's equivalent to doing the same action to him. As we serve the brethren in Jesus' name, we serve him. Compassionate service to one another is the natural, the normal overflow of the character of Christ within us. It's evidence of kingdom life. You see, no one is insignificant to our king. 
Even the least in terms of notoriety among Christians, Jesus declares that with such a person, he identifies himself. Compassion toward the least one is compassion toward Jesus Christ. But then we come to the unrighteous are judged. It's at this point that the unrighteous expose their hearts. It's a difference in character. There's a difference in the outflow of character and its acts of compassion towards Christ's followers that would be noted between the righteous and the unrighteous, the believer and the unbeliever. And the way you treat the brethren serves as a good indicator of your heart. Our Lord identifies this as evidence on the day of judgment. Notice the finality in the king's command. Remember what he said to believers? Christ the king commands, come. But to unbelievers gathered in Christ's judgment throne, he declares with finality in verse 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The worst thing about hell is not the fire or the darkness, or the anguishing cries, the worst thing is that those in hell will never know the tender mercy and kindness of Christ. They'll never feel the warmth of His compassion that they've experienced so often during this life. Instead, Christ describes them as cursed, a word that implies forever under the curse of divine condemnation. Believers are blessed of the Father, but those who've rejected Christ and spurned his gospel are the cursed ones, living under the penalty of God's wrath. And so the penalty of hell lasts forever. Christ calls it the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that which is suitable for the enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren, the one who opposes everything good and holy and right, will be suitable as well for those who've rejected Jesus Christ. And the offense of those spurning Christ and turning away from the kindness of God is that uh, such infinite proportions that it will take eternity to satisfy the, the, the justice of God. Someone has explained it this way. Those who are sent to hell never will have paid the whole of the debt which they owe to God, nor indeed a part which bears any proportion to the whole. In other words, you can't pay enough to make up for rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid it all. Jesus Christ has satisfied the justice of God. He's paid the entire debt that you owe for your rebellion and your sin. Justice, therefore, never can be actually satisfied if you're condemned to an everlasting time in hell. Pay your debt forever in the everlasting fire, eternal punishment, or receive the payment of Christ on your behalf through faith in Him. We see the finality of the king's command, but we also find the revelation, the king's judgment. Jesus distinguishes those who must depart from Him from the eternal fire of hell by explaining their glaring omission which exposed their character. Verse 42, For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited 
visited me not. And just as the Christian's character is demonstrated by the acts of compassion and kindness, the unbeliever's character is demonstrated by their attitude toward the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord identifies with his people. And even an omission of compassion toward Christians gives evidence of rejection of Christ. Look at verse 44 and 45. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, and a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? And then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as he did it not to the one of, one of the least of these, he did it not to me. When I read of Christians being persecuted and imprisoned or beaten or rudely treated because they are followers of Jesus Christ, these words declare that justice will be done. It says in verse 46, And these shall go away to everlasting punishment. It's because of the way they've treated Christians that they will spend time in hell. Is that why they'll go to hell? Is it because they've treated and mistreated Christians? Really not. Because no, merely outward evidence of their, it's just an outward evidence of their enmity with Christ. They've rejected the King. They've never bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. And they'll spend eternity in the same place of wrath reserved for devils and angels. It's because they've never been saved. They've never trusted Christ as their Savior. And so the conclusion here is Jesus declared the righteous in verse 46, but the righteous into life eternal. It's because of doing the, is it because of doing the acts toward Christians that they get eternal life? No. Just as it's not because people have mistreated Christians that they'll go to hell. It's not because people have treated Christians kindly that they merit eternal life. No, you can never merit eternal life. But those acts of compassion do go hand in hand with living faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord. Now he puts the sheep on his right to know his eternal favor, but the goats on the left to meet his wrath. The question is, where will you be? On Christ's right or on his left? Judgment is certain, but so is eternal life through the all-sufficient merits of Jesus Christ. Again, we cannot work or merit eternal life We cannot work for it. We cannot merit it. But Jesus paid it all. But because he paid it for us and we've accepted that, our lives should show acts of kindness to the brethren. We need to heed the warning of Christ concerning the judgment by casting ourselves upon his mercy and trusting him as our Savior and our King. Let's bow our heads in prayer.